where we're saved by Jesus' work, we're changed by Jesus' grace, and we're living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so part of how we do that is singing praises to our King each week. Um, we um, uh, open up God's Word, and in that we're hoping to see how God's story uh, impacts uh, and, and transforms our personal stories, uh, our individual stories, and then invites us into his big story. Uh, and so we've been doing this series this winter leading up to Easter called The Story of Everything um, that allows us to have some perspective of the, the narrative, the plot, if you will, of the Bible of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so today um, we're going to be in chapter five of that story. So hopefully you've got one of these discipleship guides with you. If not, you can grab that. But um, what we're going to be doing today is a little bit ambitious. I'm going to try to preach us through the entire book of Exodus. So for the last few weeks, we've done three weeks in Genesis on creation, God making everything good, fall, sin, entering uh, into the world, and that separation that happens with God, but also his mercy and grace to us. And then last week, we saw that God kept and renewed his promises to bring salvation to, to bring healing, to bring wholeness, and that he would do that through a royal family, if you will, through the family line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and so that kind of set the stage um, for the rest of the book of Genesis that, that talked about Jacob and one of his sons, Joseph, um, who kind of got chucked out of the family because he's a little prideful, ends up being um, uh, imprisoned in Egypt, but goes on a path from, from being in a pit and prison to prosperity uh, and being the second in command of Egypt. And in doing so, God was faithful to provide for his royal family, again, if you will, um, to make it through a worldwide famine. And so God's people, this, this holy family, migrated into Egypt, and they put down roots there. It wasn't the land that God had promised them, but it was where they dwell, and so that's kind of the end of the book of Genesis, and that leads us up to the book of Exodus. There's about a 400-year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, and, you know, if you were just to put in your mind what 1724 was like. And you're like, I, I have no idea. I don't even know what 1984 is like for some of you people, right? Um, like, like, that's 400 years, I think. My math might even be off on that. It might even be 60, I don't know. I went to public school. That's not important. So, um, but, but go back 400 years. There was a lot of changes. And God's people went from being favored refugees, welcomed into Egypt, kind of given like, like, a, like, like a good part of the land to, to grow and dwell in. And what had changed is they had gone from favored refugees to marginalized minorities. And so they were literally enslaved. 400 years had passed since the family came in. And, the, and on the plus side, they'd been fruitful and multiplied. Right, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, that, that command and call that we have as humans to be fruitful and multiply. They were doing it. They were, they were multiplying like crazy, having kids. They went from like a family with 12 brothers to like maybe a million people in Egypt. And yet Egypt wasn't too cool with that. Because Egyptians really like Egyptians back then. They didn't like the Israelites. And so they kept them a slave. They kept them oppressed. And so... In this climate 
where Egypt was like this world superpower. Um, God's people, they were a nation, but they weren't free. They were under the rule of the preeminent economic, military, cultural force in the world of their day. And their role was cheap labor. And so they weren't free. Yeah, they were multiplying, but they weren't free. And so in this environment, the Egyptians at a certain point were like, hey, these Israelites are multiplying so fast that if other nations come and attack us, we don't know who these people are. Like, we don't know if they're going to take arms against us. And maybe it's like, a, like, like an invading force already. We got to do what we can to limit this population. And so they systemically put effectively abortion clinics all over the nation of Egypt. They told all of the midwives, if a Hebrew son was born, you are to kill him. Because they're like, all right, because we don't want those guys leading rebellion against us. We don't want them starting families or businesses or owning land or doing anything that could cultivate culture. We just want to keep them down. And through, I think, some fear of the Lord, it says, the midwives kept reporting back to, to Pharaoh that like, hey, the Israelite women, they just give birth so fast. We can't, can't do it. There was like, oh, civil disobedience to an evil government and what they were doing. And through civil disobedience and through God's providence, while many of Israel's sons ended up drowned in the Nile River, one was placed in like this little reed of an ark and sent down the river, and he found his way into the royal family of Egypt, and that baby was Moses. And already, like, some of you did, like, did Bible school and stuff, oh, yeah, Moses. Like, okay, yeah, Old Testament guy. You're like, he's a hero, right? Eh, he's, a, he's all right. He's a good dude, but also not. So we'll see about Moses. He rises up um, in this family. He's treated like a prince of Egypt, and when, when he gets to about 40 years old, so 20, 40 years have gone by, People, God's people are still being oppressed. They're, they're making bricks with less and less straw. Um, they're building up these pyramids for the pharaohs, all that stuff. And it's just brutal. And, and he just kind of has a, 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 an awakening, if you will. And it's like, I cannot handle the systemic injustice that's happening to my people. And so while one of the guards is whipping uh, a Hebrew uh, um, out uh, where they're working at, what Moses does is goes one man Antifa riot, just one man vigilante. Like, I'm going to take this guy. He murders the guy. That's why I'm like, he could not pass a background check to serve in our kids' ministry. Okay, right? I mean, like Moses, hey, I'm Moses here. Yeah, that's cool, man. We just want to make sure you stay a certain number of feet away from the security guards, right? You know, so like, it's just, he's a complex guy. And so he's thinking that that's going to spur on this rebellion. That's going to be what like rises everybody up. Only his people are like, hold up. Um, we just saw you murder that guy. I'm not really interested in what you have to say, Moses, because you're a murderer. You're just as bad as the Egyptians. So he goes and he flees. And he finds himself out in a land called Midian, which was actually in the same region that God had promised his people generations before. And for Moses, he gets married. He has kids. He, he actually ends up becoming quite prosperous. He lays down roots. Uh, and, and I mean, honestly, just kind of has a quiet, peaceful life. He's like, I'm done with Seattle. I'm moving to Wenatchee. I got a farm and he's doing good. And he's like, I don't, I don't even want to come back to Seattle unless there's like a, a Husky game 
right? And so that's what he's doing. He's out there. And then something happens 40 years later. Moses is 80 years old, and God shows up and, and dramatically changes not only the rest of Moses' life, but the trajectory of God's people as they transition from his family to his nation. And so that's a long intro that gets us here um, to, to Exodus chapters 2 and 3. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. But um, I would say almost more than any other book of the Bible, if you don't understand what's happening in Exodus, the language to use, the imagery used, the things we're going to look at today and the rest of our time is foundational for understanding the rest of the Old Testament, yes, but also understanding Jesus, his work on the cross, God's people. I mean, this is just absolutely bedrock stuff uh, for us as God's people to understand. So here we are, Exodus chapter 2. People cry out, God hears, and God arrives. Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 25 says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. So that, that was the one who was Moses' adopted dad. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And God knew. So here's the people, 40 years later. Uh, politically, things have gotten a lot worse in 40 years than they were before, because at least that other king had Moses, who was like, you know, kind of his adopted Hebrew son. Now we've got a new king, a new pharaoh, who's even more intense, and the people cry out. They, they, you would think that after maybe 400 years of slavery, that God's people would have just kind of gotten used to it. This is just the way things are now. I mean, why, why even, why try to fight it? Why pray? Why work? Like, it's just, at a certain point, you get so beat down, you just feel defeated. Except there's something in each one of us that knows that we're not designed for slavery. We're designed for liberty. We're designed for freedom. We're designed for flourishing. And so they're not content to live under Egyptian slavery. And for us, I, I believe that we need to think about this in some spiritual terms. That you and I, and we, we're not made to live under the yoke of, under the slavery of sin, of pride, of brokenness, of shame, of rebellion against God. That that ends up weighing us down. We're made for freedom. We're made for connection with God. We're made for flourishing. And so at a certain point, they know that their slavery is not right, and they just, they just start crying out to God, this is not okay. God, please come and intervene. Uh, they assess their condition, their experience, their groaning, and they're crying out, not just this is terrible, but God, come in and fix this. God, come and do what only you are capable of doing. Because they're, they're way beyond, like, maybe the next generation will get it right. Maybe the next pharaoh will be better than the last pharaoh. No, it's still tough. And so they're looking for God to do something mighty. They're crying out not for a better plan or better strategy or political favor or cultural influence. They're crying out just for rescue. And sometimes we think our prayers 
just go out to an empty void. Maybe you came in today and you're like, I'm not very spiritual. Uh, you know, I, I just, somebody told me that they've got good mugs. Uh, and, and so that's why I'm here. Um, you know, if you're, well, if you're new, welcome, get a mug. Um, but, but like the reality is our prayers don't just go to like an empty void. We believe that there is a God and that God hears that God knows your groaning. God knows your prayers. And he remembers, it says, his promise with Abraham. Not that he forgot it, but that remembrance is, I, I'm ratifying my promise to you, and now I'm going to act on it. And how God decides to act on his promise is to show up. He sees their pain. He, he, he knows these people. I mean, when it says that God knew, that is God being intimately aware of their situation. God is intimately aware of your situation, your heart's condition, your life, everything you're struggling with. He knows. So we cry out to him. We appeal to him. That these people are in political and social slavery. We find ourselves in spiritual slavery. The Israelites, they're not made for Egypt. They're made for the promised land. You and I are not made for brokenness and sin were made for wholeness and communion with God. And so I want you to ask yourself, where do you need to actually cry out to God? Where are you in a situation? Where are you in a heart condition? Where, where are you in sin or suffering or shame? Just saying, I need somebody else to deal with this. The situation I am in is too dire. The, the, where do you need deliverance? Because I don't want you I don't want us to assume that slavery is our natural condition because it's not what God designed for us. It's not God's desire for us. And so it's not enough for God to just see and hear. God also arrives. And when he shows up, he, he speaks to Moses. And he does so in a very miraculous way. That The Bible says um, that, that there was a bush that was being consumed by fire, uh, excuse me, burning with fire, showing God's intensity, God's heat, God's holiness, and yet the bush wasn't being consumed. Truly miraculous. Like we believe in miracles. And out of this, Moses starts to engage with God and has this conversation that we see in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. It goes like this. And then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Those are the people who are living there now. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come and I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people to the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of, of Israel out of Egypt? God said in verse 12, he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God on this mountain. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. So here's God commissioning Moses to go back. So before he was uh, a a one-man vigilante kind of deal, like like trying to overthrow the government um, through just murdering one guy, and what God doesn't do is doesn't tell Moses, here's a better battle plan. He's not sending Moses as a general to overthrow Egypt. He's sending Moses as a mailman with a message. You and I and us, like we, if we're on mission and we want to see people love and know the Lord, it is not our job to defeat the enemy. It is our job to give the good news of the God who's victorious, to be the ones who deliver the mail. And so Moses is a little skeptical. Maybe he remembers that, ah, I've got like a arrest record back in Egypt. Like it's going to be kind of difficult. And if I show back up and tell people, God, talk to me next to a bush, they might think I'm a little nuts, right? And you might think he's a little nuts. And so God says, tell them I am. And what that means is that I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By saying, God says, I am, he's saying he exists. You're like, yeah, God, God exists. Well, what he's doing is he's contrasting the fact that he exists with the Egyptians who have a pantheon of gods they worship. Incredibly pluralistic. They have all these different gods for different seasons and different things. And God's saying, they don't even exist. I am. I exist. They are false idols that lead to nothing. I exist um, when the idols of Egypt do not. See, we make gods who don't listen, who don't hear, who don't know us, who don't love us or care for us, and ultimately are not able to deliver. And God is saying, I hear you. I know you. I see you. I'm going to arrive, and I'm going to deliver you from slavery. He's faithful to them, and he will be faithful to us in eternity because God always keeps his promises. And so God, or Moses rather, goes back to Egypt and he meets with Israel and he goes before Pharaoh and, and, he, and he says, you know, let my people go so that we can worship. Hey, we're, we're all, we just need some visas. We're going to leave Egypt. Probably not coming back. It's been a little rough for us here. But we're going to go out into uh, the wilderness and we're going to go worship God where he's prescribed us to. And of course, a government that's chock full of cheap and free labor is like, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll just get to these uh, pyramids later. No, no, Pharaoh's like, I have not heard of your God. I've heard of Ra, the sun God. I've heard of the God of the gnats. I've heard of the God of the Nile River, the God of the cows, the God of the wheat, all these different things, the God of the frogs. I know all them. I've never heard of your guy. I don't know who he is. And so since you've bugged me, I'm just going to go ahead and make things a little worse for your people. I don't, I don't like this, like all this noise on social media that you're putting out here, Moses. Like, like, like all the, pe- the groundswell of people starting to think that they should be free. I don't like that. We're censoring that. You're all going to go back to work, and it's going to be rougher. Less water, less straw for making the bricks. It's going to be tough. It's going to be brutal. And so, so when Moses begins like talking about God's liberation, the enemy actually rises up and gets stronger. So for a few chapters, things are actually worse for God's people than they were before Moses shows up. And at a certain point, they're just like, this is, 
This was a lot rougher than we thought. And Moses is even beginning to question, like, like, God, why have you done this? Things are actually getting worse. He's already forgotten God's promises. Moses thinks the bad chapter of the story is the end of the story. When he has already forgotten, spoiler alert, God wins. Like, like, like in whatever chapter we're in in our lives, like we're, we're not at the end if, if, if it hasn't looked like God has won. And so, like, we can have great hope and great confidence in whatever we're dealing with. And so God talks to Moses again here in Exodus chapter 6, starting in verses 6 through 8. He comes and re-promises deliverance, and he says this in verse 6. Everybody's grumbling, and he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. He also said a mighty arm. And with you, and sorry, with great acts of judgment. Like how is God going to deliver them from evil? He's going to judge evil. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So God at at points when our faith dwindles just ratifies his promises to his people. He says, because I am, I will. I will deliver you from slavery. I'll bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'll redeem you with a mighty hand that God's a mighty warrior. I will bring you out from your oppressors. I will make you a people and you will live a new life in a promised land. God's saying, I'm I'm true to my word. I'm building a community and now I'm empowering you for life. That is the promise we have with life with God. And so God doesn't rise up and tell his people, you better go save yourself. You better organize. You better win the next election. You better win this battle. Like, no, he doesn't, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't give him a battle plan. He just says, I am going to display my awesome power in how I am more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. See, the Egyptian superpower would have looked so, not just imp- impressive, but so impregnable, like, so, like no chance for victory at all. And yet there's a creator who spoke the universe into existence. And over the next several chapters, all God does is establish dominance over all of like the puny gods of the Egyptians. He starts with the Nile River, which was their, their source of, of economic stability and prosperity and, and life and agriculture and all those things. And, and, and even though they'd used it to drown kids in before for the Israelites, God's like, you know, you know what? I'm going to make that whole river flow with blood. And, and they're enti- they just hit right at the heart and the core of their economy. And then other Egyptian idols are brought low. Frogs and gnats, hail, boils, they devour crops, they kill livestock, they bring pain and suffering. Even at one point, there's, their sun god, Ray, is blocked out where God just says, oh, you worship the sun? I created the sun. Darkness over everything now. Like, you've got the wrong god. And at a certain point, you almost start to feel sorry for the Egyptians. You're like, why won't you guys tap out? It's really, really bad. Why won't you repent? Why won't you humble yourself? Why won't you recognize that there's a greater God than the one that you're worshiping, whether it's some God of the world or the God you look at in the mirror every morning? Just be humble. Receive 
the mercy and grace of God. And the challenge we have is that sin and evil and oppression are never rational. And so like Pharaoh kind of goes through these cycles. Yeah, I'll let you guys out. Yeah, no, I won't. And at a certain point, God tells Moses, I'm, I'm going to do... I'm going to do my toughest thing against Egypt that I can conceive at this point. He says, go tell Pharaoh that there's one more plague. If you don't release God's people, the firstborn sons of Egypt will all die. And I just want to be clear, that's justice for a nation that was trying to systematically enact genocide on God's people. And so he promises that, that for God's people, when the angel of death comes, to, for God's people to show their allegiance to Yahweh, to I am, to be distinguished from all the other gods, it says, hey, you're going to sacrifice a lamb, and you're going to take that blood of the lamb, and you're going to put it on your doorposts, and that's going to be what saves your family from God's righteous justice. That's how I'll know you're my people. You will share a special meal together with that lamb. You'll be ready for freedom. That night, you'll be ready to leave Egypt, and I'll know that you're my people. And so when the angel of death comes to Egypt, it will pass over the homes of those that are covered by the lamb. And that ends up being a a remembrance, a holy holiday for God's people for a couple millennia. Like maybe you don't know, like Jesus was killed during Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he's saying, hey, redemption's not going to be just being released from slavery. The shed blood is also going to protect you from the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And so the plague comes and Egypt wails in agony and Israel is released, fully equipped for the journey that God has for them. And you're like, what a, what a terrible deliverance. But thank God there's justice. Thank God there's also mercy for those who pledge allegiance to, to God. And then they're going. And you're like, okay, great. They're going to go to the promised land. Everything's going to be awesome, right? And so, so they're going and they're going. And, and they're on the journey for a while. And they come to the Red Sea. And, and they're stopped because hey, they don't have boats. They don't have a navy, right? They're just there. And, and, and at a certain point, something happens where the Egyptians are like, hold up. We're done with our grief. Now we want revenge. Like a nation of slaves is not let go very easily. And so the Egyptians roar out with their army uh, across the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And God's people find themselves between literally like a rock and a hard place, between this army coming and the the waters that they cannot pass. And and so um, it's, 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 it's a harrowing scene that at a certain point, they're back to the place again where only God can save. And that leads us to Exodus chapter 14. Verses 10 through 14 says this. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt? You've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Is it not this that we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians. Fact check, 
false. They didn't say that. They were ready to leave Egypt. Okay? Community Notes on Twitter says they actually said, we want to leave. Revisionist history, fake news right there. Okay. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. The God who took you out of slavery in Egypt is the God who's going to deliver you to the promised land. If your faith and trust is in Jesus, the God who has freed you from slavery of sin is not going to allow you to remain enslaved in sin the rest of your days. He will fight for you. And so trapped between the Red Sea and the closing army, God parts the sea, he saves his nation, and then, and then the water just swallows up that army. And all of God's people are on the other side of the Red Sea, the other side of their deliverance. And this army that looked so impressive, that looked like it was surely going to enslave them again, is just drowned in the water. The biggest superpower the world had seen, done, nothing, because of the power of our God. And they're there on the edge of the Red Sea, and they're looking back, and what is their response? If you read Exodus 15, you'll see there's this kind of holy exhale. We've made it out of slavery. Egypt is not going to pursue us anymore. Satan, sin, and death have no hold over us. And their response is to sing. That is, that's actually part of why we sing on a Sunday morning, remembering the God of our salvation and what he's done to defeat Satan, sin, and death to lead us through the Red Sea, to deliver us to what he has for us. Victory over sin and slavery is cause for great worship for the God who fights for freedom. It says this in Exodus 15, verse 2. This is a song they sing. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, I'll praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. They're praising the God of victory. And so here they are going about this journey and, and they don't stay at that shore. At some points, I think we, we get stuck on the shore of the Red Sea where all we see is what God has done for us in the past, which is great. Countless times, God's people are reminded about what he did. But that's not where they're called to dwell. God has more for them. He's calling them not just to remember what they've been saved from, but to press in and live in to what they've been saved for, where they've been saved and called to. And so they go about uh, and they're provided for in the wilderness. You can skip ahead to uh, Exodus chapter uh, 19. And after they've been saved, after they've been brought out from Egypt, the God who saves us is also the God who I'll use a word, who legislates for us. Meaning the, the God who gives us his word, his law. And so these freed slaves are at the end of slavery. Exodus is the end of slavery, but it's also the beginning of their freedom. And God said, there's a certain way that you're going to live. And in Exodus 19, verses 4 and 6, it says this. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. This is God talking to his people. And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, he says. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is what God wanted to tell Moses to tell his people. And so they're out there in the wilderness. And and the law to love God and to love people is given to freed slaves for the purposes of promoting their flourishing and diminishing evil. And so if you, I mean, remember early on in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2, God gave one law to Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, as sin multiplies, so does the law. And so now God lays out something that, that you might be familiar with, the, the Ten Commandments. And I say you might be familiar with, if, if you're a baby boomer, you actually probably had the Ten Commandments in your public school. I know, <gasps> horrifying. Now, now you can like get like a gender unicorn in the school. Um, that's, that's there now. Um, and so, so, but like this was a normal thing for our, our culture and society to know these, the, the Ten Commandments. And, and you're like, man, I, I don't even know if I can name one of them. Let me just go through them uh, for you real quick. The first um, four are really about your relationship with God. God God's given the, this law, the, these commandments to um, freed slaves. And he says this, number one, no other gods before me. God is exclusive. He's like, I did not enslave you from slavery in Egypt for you to worship other gods, to be enslaved by idols. Number two, don't make an image of God. What God's saying is God is transcendent, that God is, is not small enough for you to be able to go onto AI and type in, give me an image of God, and in like a little two-by-two two square, it pops up. See, we make God too small, too incomplete, to have an effective understanding and right worship. Number three, do not misuse God's name. Like, don't use God's name in vain. God is important and holy and worthy of reverence. And so as, as Christians, we don't say Jesus Christ in derision because that's our God and King. And so um, um, uh, some of you guys know Tim Tebow, right? Former Heisman Trophy winner, uh, Christian guy, uh, played for the University of Florida, and I think played like one game in the NFL. I think he won. Um, I, I saw this clip with my son, uh, and Tebow is like at the driving range. I'm not going to try to do a golf swing because I don't golf. Um, but, but he's there, and he's with some buddies, and apparently he had some amazing drive. And one of his buddies just yells out, Jesus, for the drive. And, and Tebow, without missing a beat, just goes, loves you. <laughs> I was like... That's a good response. You can use that as long as you want to be Tim Tebow. All right. Number four, keep the Sabbath. God took people out of slavery. And he's saying, so take a day a week to rest. I, God has not called them from one form of slavery to another. They're heirs of the kingdom of God. Yeah, there's work. Yeah, there's purpose and all that. And there's still stuff to do. But rest. Those are the first four. The next six are about our relationship with other people. Number five, you'll honor your parents. Like God's foundation for flourishing nations are faithful families. The family will be valued as a joy to be experienced. Number six, do not murder. The life that God created is sacred, that we believe that life is sacred from womb to tomb that these are image bearers of God, and to take that life is to, to rob God. 
Number seven, do not commit adultery. Your sexuality is that you're freed from the slavery of sin, so you're going to honor God with your marriage and your sexual purity. Number eight, you shall not steal. You're not going to steal other people's property. Like, 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 the, like the Egyptians, excuse me, the Israelites, they're going to get to work and actually enjoy the fruits of their labor. Saying so you're going to respect each other's possessions. Number nine, don't lie. Don't lie about others. Honor other image bearers enough to represent them accurately. And then number 10, do not covet. Be content with your blessing. Be content with what you have and don't worry about others because God's provision for you is sufficient. And man, maybe you're like, you're right now, maybe you took notes or maybe you know, the notes will be up online too. You're like, man, 10 of those. Like, where am I going to find those? Well, Exodus chapter 20 has these all laid out. And you're thinking, okay, 10? I think we can do 10, right? Seems like a lot, but we can figure it out. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't take too many more chapters for God's people to essentially violate over half of these commandments in one raging frat party. They were like, hey, Moses goes away for a little bit, and they're like, you know what? I don't think God saved us. I think a cow saved us. All right, that violates number one. Number two, let's make a cow with all of our, um, with all of our jewelry. So they make this golden calf, and then they, they worship it. Okay, well, there's number two. They made an image of a false god. Okay, number three, they misuse God's name because they're calling him a cow. And then they, they, they just keep going, and they have this raging party, so they knock out number seven on don't commit adultery, okay? And then the whole premise is that Moses has lied to them about God, so that there they are uh, violating number uh, nine about lying about others. And then they're like, we finally have gods like the Egyptians do. Well, there they are, number 10, they're coveting the Egyptian gods. God's always going to be the hero of the story. God's always going to be the hero of the story. And just like Adam and Eve wanted the garden without the God, they wanted salvation without serving the Savior. So if you skip ahead to Exodus 33, I mean, man, I mean, Moses is just like livid. He's frustrated. He knows that God can't obviously be happy uh, about this. Um, At one point, um, Moses comes back down and he takes the golden calf and he busts it into pieces, throws it in the river, and makes them all drink this water with all these gold flakes in it. Um, I'm a former fraternity rush chairman. We used to throw parties where we'd take shots of something called Goldschlager. Okay, if you know what that is, it's this horrible cinnamon liqueur with a whole bunch of like foil in it that looks like gold. We thought it was a party. I didn't know it was an Old Testament punishment. Okay, the next day, I think I knew it was an Old Testament punishment. Okay. So here's Moses, and he's talking to God, um, and they're having this conversation in verse, uh, chapter 33, verses 13 through 16. It says this. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is Moses talking to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sights, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? 
I am your people from every other people on the face of the earth? What Moses is saying is, God, we don't even want to go into the promised land if you're not going to be there. I think some of us want the good things that we think happen with a life with God, and we don't want a relationship with God. And what what Moses is saying is, God, the only thing that matters is that you are with us, God. God, I don't want the promised land if your presence isn't also going to be with us. See, you and I were not just made to not be in slavery. We were not just made to be by ourselves, to be our best selves. We are made to be in communion with God to enjoy the favor of God, to have relationship with God. And it's our sin that separates us from that. And God knows that. And God hears that. And so when we cry out to God, God is merciful and kind to us and answers with his presence in the Holy Spirit, answers with salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That these people are going to be part of a new nation, no longer slaves, but saved to proclaim the God who saves. They said, hey, we are going to be a nation of people that the rest of the world is going to look at to say, their God saves. The church, the people of God, we exist in the world to be lights to the world, to show people who don't know God, their God saves. Not to be the ones who win the battle, but to point to the one who does. And that's where we see Jesus in this story as we begin to close. God hears the cries of his people desiring freedom. God knows our sin. He knows our suffering. And God comes down in Jesus with a message of freedom, a message of repentance, a message of salvation. And rather than a mighty arm where God's this mighty warrior like he was with the Egyptians, Jesus answers with great humility. And it takes him all the way to the cross. Just like Moses was under the threat of state-sponsored infanticide, Jesus was under the threat of King Herod where where he murdered all the, the children under two years old, all the young boys under two years old. And just like Moses takes, and his, God's people go take flight to Egypt and returns to Israel, Jesus actually, in his life, they leave Herod to go down into Egypt and dwell and then come back to God's promised land, let out of Egypt. Jesus says in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, meaning before Abraham existed, I am. Jesus Christ says he's the I am of the Old Testament. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so we as a church, we as the people of God, we say that we're saved by Jesus' work. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb and the mighty God, he he still tells us to just be still and be saved by his mighty work. 1 Corinthians 7 says, For Christ is our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. His work saves us, again, not with overwhelming power, but with humility. And like those Israelites who had a special meal over Passover, when we gather to remember what our God did in salvation, we take a special meal in communion, remembering Jesus' body broken for us on the cross, Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross. That just like the Passover lamb blood saves that family, it is the blood of Jesus as our sacrifice that saves us from the judgment of God. 
and we're changed by Jesus' grace. He doesn't just take us from slavery, but he makes us a new people. That I know we talked about the Ten Commandments. We talked about God's law. It is so important for us to understand that God gave his law to freed people, not to free people. God didn't say, hey, live this way, do these things, follow those Ten Commandments for a couple generations in Egypt, and I'll think about saving you. Like, if you're like, hey, I don't have a relationship with God, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here I'm sure I'm, I'm already doing that I'm not supposed to do. Maybe I'll clean myself up, and then I'll come back. No, that's not the gospel. That's not the way our God saves Our God saves us, takes us from slavery of sin, washes us clean, makes us new, leads us through the Red Sea, leads us through the wilderness, and then says, here's how you shall now live in response to the fact I've already freed you. God's not hoping that you will get your life right so that you can be a freed slave. He's freed you so that you can live a new life with him and for him. And so... That's part of how and why we have a mission to proclaim freedom to captives who don't know anything but the slavery of Egypt. There's a world out there still worshiping all sorts of ridiculous gods. And our job's not to fight them. Our job's to be the messenger to tell them that there's freedom in Christ. And then if your hope and trust and faith is in Jesus, we just encourage you, like, to be baptized. That just like God's people were led through the Red Sea in baptism, we are acknowledging Jesus being buried in the tomb as we go into the water. And just as God's people made it through to the other side, and just as Jesus rose from the tomb, as you rise out of the water, it's symbolic identifying with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's pledging allegiance to a new king. It's placing your hope in a new Savior who is Jesus. So we encourage you to be baptized. This is your time to respond. This is your time to respond to God's word. This is your time to respond to the story of his nation that if you are in slavery of sin, then this is your day to humble yourself and to receive freedom with life with God that comes in Christ. And so as we take communion, we acknowledge that we're not the hero of our stories, but we're the villain. And God loves villains enough to save us mercifully (laughs) when our hope and trust is in the hero who is in Jesus. There's so much here in this book of Exodus, but it shows us that there's a God who's called us to leave slavery and walk in freedom as we continue to trust Jesus. Let's pray.